We've gotten to that portion of the story where our stupidity and entitlement are our complete undoing. The word of the week is exceptionalism, because here in America, we like to think we're exceptional at everything. We're supposedly exceptional at democracy, even though we have a president who refuses to accept the results of the election. We have a party that actively engages in voter suppression and specifically in disenfranchising black and brown voters. We're supposedly exceptional at providing a pathway to a quality life, even though we have a broken healthcare system, just underwent a massive wealth transfer during this pandemic. And there are over 20 million people who are out of work. We are, as it turns out, exceptional at lying to the rest of the world about who we really are. Because right now, what we're really exceptional at is a total disregard for our own safety and complete incompetence. I know we'd rather not think about the pandemic, and I know so many people who are acting as if it doesn't exist, but at the rate things are going, I don't see how this country avoids another lockdown, and we deserve it. The COVID-19 numbers are absolutely terrifying right now. As of the taping of this podcast, over the last seven days, the United States has averaged a staggering 127,000 COVID cases a day. That is three and a half times higher than what it was in mid-September and far exceeds our previous highest seven-day average, which was about 67,000. One public health expert predicted that in the next few weeks, we could very well be looking at 200,000 new COVID cases a day. A day. Attitude reflects leadership. And the attitude of this country from the beginning is that we have no interest in actually committing to curbing this virus, which is the exact mentality of the failing leadership that is heading out of the White House. We wanted our indoor dining and had to have our hair and nail salons and our gyms open. All of those things we are prioritizing over our health. I know people have to make a living, but that's also what's disappointing. We have put people in a position where they have to choose between their health and their job. We have decided that people just have to be sacrificed. Tough shit. The stimulus package has been held up by our lawmakers. We don't have a national mask mandate because people want the right to infect whoever they want because America, there is no rent relief, no student loan relief. We have made the conscious decision to embarrassingly hang American citizens out to dry. So everyone, please wear a mask, wash your hands, stop gathering. The pandemic ain't over, not by a long shot. We are, as it turns out, exceptional at lying to the rest of the world about who we really are. And that's our word of the week. Now on to today's guest. I think the first time I saw her on screen, uh, she was on an episode of Full House. This was in the early 90s, and she was just adorable. Had a commanding presence even at a young age. But by the time I saw her, I was actually late to the party because she's been acting since she was in diapers. Literally, she got her first gig when she was 10 months old. And she's had her SAG card since she was three. But the beauty of watching her career, which is now spanned 30 years, is that I always felt like every role she took, she did it with intention and purpose. You've seen her in Eve's Bayou, The Great Debaters, the fantastic series Underground, and also the DC comic movie Birds of Prey. But her most recent work has generated so much deserved buzz. People are absolutely raving about this show. She stars as Letty in the hit HBO series Love Craft Country, which is super dope. Up next on Jamel Hill's Unbothered, the wonderfully talented. Journey Smollett. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I'm going to start this uh, podcast journey by telling you an embarrassing story that does involve you. No, you didn't do anything embarrassing. All right. <laughs> Just so you know. I'm like, oh, shoot. What are we about to get into? No, 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 no. It, it's it's strictly me and um, my best friend, Kelly. So we saw Ease by You many moons ago. And it was one of our favorite movies. But you have a, I'm pretty sure this is you that says this line in this movie. And I know it's been so long. You're like, why the hell would I remember a line from that movie? But just in case that you did. So we went through a period. We're actually still in this period. So I'm not going to pretend that we're mature enough to have gotten over this. Where whenever we talked about like somebody getting down with somebody, somebody having sex with somebody, we'd be like, and they were rubbing (laughs) And it's so ridiculous. And we always say that line. We'll be like, and they were rubbing, girl. (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. You know what? No one has pointed that out, that term out to me. I don't think ever, actually. But it's it's such a a child's way of explaining it. It is. It is. You you know this is bad. You know this is something that you shouldn't be seeing. And you certainly shouldn't be seeing your father do it with another woman, you know. But, oh, memories, memories, you know. Casey, she's such a genius, Casey Lemons. Um, And for me, she's for sure one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I'm still doing this. You know, Eve Bayou was really the project. I was only 10, but it was the project that I did where I knew, oh, this isn't just a hobby. Like, this is actually something I love and something I want to do for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, and uh, and sometimes it, it shows it's weird how uh, when you watch movies, the, the most random lines stick with you for some reason. And while I can remember a lot of lines from that movie, that's the one that became the hallmark <laughs> for what you. we say, which only <laughs> lets you know... I'm a child. So that's literally it. <laughs> but that's um, great that you point to that experience as something that really lets you know that you could do this for real. You, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because you and Megan Good, who, was, who I've also had on this podcast, when I look at the length of your acting careers and you're still so young and yet you've been in the game for so long, um, it's actually kind of surprising that, and this is what I what my uh, my question is is that did you get to a point considering when you started where you were ever burnt out or ever doubted that this was something that you wanted to do oh hell yeah 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 i mean honestly i was pretty young when i felt burnt out which is kind of um sobering you know it was probably like in my teenage years um up until like my 20th birthday, I, I was on an airplane going to South Africa and that trip to South Africa changed my life and um, made me become unburnt. 
I should say. Um, but yeah, I, I was, you know, I was incredibly frustrated with industry and um, at that point had been essentially doing it for 20 years, you know, or 19 plus years, you know, I've been in front of the camera since I was 10 months old. And so, um, you know, growing up, having having a taste of certain projects you know a taste of working with amazing filmmakers like a casey lemons or francis coppola or you know be you know having a scene partner in a samuel jackson or an angela bassett you know it's like i got really spoiled early on and kind of had this standard in my mind of what i wanted to do what kind of career i wanted to have um, how the the level of craft I should be pursuing. And um, I was just frustrated with the roles that I was, um, you know, being submitted for or offered or whatever. Um, they just weren't satisfying. And, you know, how many times can someone be told, oh, we're not willing to go ethnic on that role, you know? Um, and it's like, well, I'm trying to pursue the really interesting roles First of all, there's not a lot written for women or girls to begin with, but then you're telling me because the complexion of my skin, you won't even let me read. You won't even let me get in the door. Is that how that is that how they phrase it? We're not willing to go ethnic. Is that how they phrase it? That is the shit that they will tell your agent. It, it's, you know, it's it's those, there's so many different phrases. They'll say um, we're not willing to go ethnic or the role hasn't opened up yet. If it opens up, it's not said as much. I haven't heard it lately, but I mean, that's like in this year. I haven't heard it, you know. <laughs> Just in 2020. <laughs> Just in 2020. And, you know, um, I've been blessed because um, the doors have are opening, you know. And, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's it's just how much can can one person take with that you know without becoming a little a little jaded but honestly that trip to south africa changed my life and you know it 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 provided this awakening in me in which um i realized it's not an option to be jaded you know to be pessimist is actually a privilege you know um a privilege not afforded to someone like me you know i i have to stay in the fight i have to stay in the game and if i've been given this calling if i've been giving this given this gift you know i believe from god how dare i not use it you know was there something that you saw or experienced in south africa that where this light bulb went off so many things you know i'd been volunteering with this nonprofit called Artists for New South Africa since I was 12. And it was, um, you know, I was inspired by so many people. I mean, my mom is an activist, so I come from that spirit. There was going to be no other option but to be active in my family, right? Um, but watching my village, you know, I had this village of mentors who were artists and activists like Samuel Jackson and Alfre Woodard and Blair Underwood and Latanya Richardson, you know, these people who you know, were as active in front of the camera as they were off, you know, and were really able to use their platform in any way they could to be change makers. And so I was their youngest board member and they were taking a delegation of, you know, them and, and a bunch of other folks were going to South Africa to build some wells in some of the townships and, you know, just do more on the ground work. Um, and 
I was broke. I mean, there was no chance in hell my broke ass, you know, was going to be able to go, you know? <laughs> like, my family, we grew up so poor, okay? Like, it don't matter if we were on TV or not. Like, we have real, real poverty issues. And so, Sam, Alfrey, uh, Deborah Santana, and a bunch of folks pitched in, and they called me, and they said, there's no way in hell we're leaving you. You're coming. And so they paid for me my whole way. When I tell you every meal, every single thing I could ask for, they paid for me to come. They said, you got to experience this. And just the, the spirit of the folks in South Africa changed me. I mean, they, it's, it's really something I can't quantify. I can't, I can't really put into words, you know, um, the, stepping into these townships. You know, we went to Inguavuma and you just see these children child-run households, first of all. Now think about that. Like we met little girls who were nine years old raising their four other siblings because both of her parents had passed away from complications due to AIDS, right? And, and so I'm like, wait, 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 huh? You know, like it's different when you, when you see it, when you bear witness to it. But then I realized, oh, there's so much need in the world, but I am here because of art, essentially. I am here because these artists created art. That art enabled them to travel across seas. Their art reached these people before they even traveled here and moved these folks, right? And then that art enabled them to come and build wells and build schools and, and do work on the ground that if I chose a different profession, I wouldn't have that level of capacity because I ain't got so many other skills, okay? <laughs> Right, been given a been given a certain amount of gifts. You know, I was considering doing something with math. I'm like, well, how's math? Like, I don't know that math is gonna get me here. <laughs> and so, watching Sam and Carlos Santana and these folks, you know, move through this country, and then we sat down with Nelson Mandela. I mean, what the fuck? You know, I mean, this man walked into the room, and I. I, you know, you have this man on a pedestal my whole life. Like, you know, you read A Long Walk to Freedom and you like, this is the closest we gonna get to Jesus, right? Like in the flesh. And then when he walked in the room, I was like, wait, oh my gosh, he is a man. He is not a God. And all this time I've been placing these people on his pedestal, including my, you know, mentors like Sam and Alfred, you know, I've been placing them on a pedestal and it, it, it was doing such a disservice to me. You know, we give our heroes this God complex, right? Um, and it borderlines on idolatry. And that's not okay. You know, it, it, it actually does more disservice to us than it does to them. Because it creates such a distance between our own ability to um, achieve greatness, to be change makers, to be active, right? Because we think, oh, they did it. And that's in a history book. They're on a museum wall, right? And I don't think they want to be there. I think they want us to realize that they're just flesh and blood, you know? Like, I, I sat next to Mr. Mandela, and I held his hand, and it was so warm. But it, it was flesh, girl. Like, it was flesh and blood, okay, in there. It wasn't no, like, it wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a ghost. He was actually in <laughs> the flesh. He wasn't a ghost. He was actually in the flesh. Like, I could see how his eyes had been damaged from working in the lime fields and like all the moles and sunspots on his face. And, and I just thought, man, this is, this is an ordinary man who has done extraordinary things. And, 
and and so that trip it for a number of reasons it 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 just changed my life and made me feel that oh i have no excuse i just don't have an option to be pessimistic i have no option to um not use my gifts uh that is really powerful uh and especially and even though like you said we do put them on pedestals to our own detriment to the point where i think maybe even some people uh, remain inactive or convince themselves not to do things because they feel like it doesn't measure up because, oh, I can't be Nelson Mandela, so therefore I should do nothing. It's like, eh, it kind of doesn't work that way. There's a lot of room in between, right? There's a whole lot of room in between. And that's the thing is, is um, you know, we as a society, we suffer from cultural amnesia. You know, we think that an, M- an MLK or Mandela made it there by themselves, right? But there's a whole crew of people that never get written in the history books, right? History gets rewritten in a way in which it's, it's summed up to, oh, this one person. And the entire movement is this one person. It's like, no, I mean, you know, Ella Baker and, and I mean, how many women were on the front lines and how many young people were on the front lines, right? Enabling an MLK right? Assisting an MLK, right? You know, speaking of uh, sort of revisionist history, how does it feel to <laughs> be a breakout star despite having a 30-year acting career? Because I'm like, you know, I, I know that people pick and choose when somebody had a breakout role, but I'm like, I thought it was eased by you, but apparently the white folks decided it was like love cross country. <laughs> And I noticed that not just you, this happened. We just saw this happen with Regina King, who is in one of the greatest runs in terms of the accolades that she's now getting. It happened with Regina Hall. It happened with Gabrielle Yuna. I was like, why are they waiting? They're just like, oh, wait, this person's been here the whole time. Yes, the black people knew it. Where y'all been? (laughs) So how does that feel for you? And in some ways, are you almost insulted that that there's a, a, a body of people who really believe this is a breakout role for you. <laughs> oh man, it's it, that that's a funny point that you you mentioned. You know, for me it's it's tricky. I don't a wise man once told me. He said, "You can't believe them when they tell you you're great cuz you'll believe them when they tell you you're not great." You know, and so honestly, I'm just keeping my head down and trying to focus on the work, you know. I'm in my books, you know, I'm in class. I'm, you know, I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to be better than the last thing I did. You know, I'm trying to push myself. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in competition with myself. I'm like, okay, how can I outdo myself? That's really my focus, you know. I don't know that, that there is ever a point of arrival. Once you've arrived, you're dead, okay? Like, you know, I'm not trying to arrive anywhere. <laughs> I'm not trying to break out to anywhere, you know? It's like, I just want to do the work. And if it means, okay, more people are aware of the work, great. But it's not my job to focus on how the work is received, honestly. Like, that's just the truth of it. Like, as an artist, it's our job to create the art in this little block box in which we create it. And then we walk away from it and then we go create something else. And it's incredibly humbling to see how the work is affecting folks on, on a bigger scale. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful for that. Hell yeah. You always want, you want to move as many people as you can. Um, but that's not really my focus. You know, it, it would, it would, it would be such an unhealthy, um, race I'd be in if I was trying to um, please folks or if I was trying to um, 
do it for that reason, you know, and I'm, I'm really not. It's just not part of my focus right now. Well, and I'm sure you've noticed uh, the people are pleased by Lovecraft Country. Um, I haven't finished it yet. I think I got two episodes left. I feel like that's where I am right now. And um, so no spoilers. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Yeah. But nevertheless, the reception for this critically and just based off fan re- uh, uh, reaction, I, I, you know, part of what got me to jump into it, I saw the trade the first time and I was like, man, that looks kind of good, but I'm not normally like the sci-fi horror type of person necessarily, but the conversation around it, once it started, I was like, oh, I think I need to get in on this. <laughs> and so me and my husband started watching it in the, the pilot episode. I was like, oh, oh, I- Oh, okay. That's what we're doing. All right. I got it. And it really blew me away. But nevertheless, the reaction, though, how does it make you feel? Because this has become a real staple right now for a lot of people. You know what I love is is it feels very disruptive. You know, it feels that, um, you know, this is a genre I've loved since I was a kid. You know, um, I've always been so curious and fascinated by the art of terror, um, you know, especially as a Black person. like. Black safety is is a living terror, okay? Um, and so, you know, Lovecraft really deconstructs this genre that we've been shut out from for so long. You know, as an actor, I know I've been shut out from it hella long. And um, it, it flips it on its head in such a way that I think that's why it feels refreshing. You know, it feels exciting for all of us. Um, I know that's what my initial impression was when, I, when Misha sent me the script. Um, mind you, she just sent it to me to read as like a friend, like, hey, this is what I'm working on. You just want to see what what your opinion was. <laughs> yeah, like the audacity. But, you know, that was my initial impression was, wait, huh? I mean, black folks into sci-fi and, and he is a vet and then she's a an adventurer, a photographer, an activist. Like, wait, they what? And then they go on this adventure and this is going to be the show. This is what exactly this is what we're doing. So this is what we're doing now. Okay. And then we fight monsters and then the the race is turns into a monster. Like, wow, okay, we're doing this. You know. <laughs> it's such a privilege to see the response, right? You know, one of the things I love so much because I've been live tweeting with the folks. Um and it's just, it's so cool to see in real time. Cause I'm like, oh, I know this part's coming. Oh shit. They going, what they going to think. <laughs> right. And then to see the response. But what I love the most about the live tweeting is to see how many folks are, you know, posting an, an article about the Gordon Parks references or, you know, the poem, you know, um, it, oh, I won't give the spoiler away right, because you haven't seen episode nine. Okay. Um, you know, but like just the, the references, the historical references, the nods to the heroes of the past, you know, our literary greats, the James Baldwin, you know, it's been amazing to see folks be like, okay, you think you knew about Tulsa in 1921, but what about all these other towns, right? Like, or, you know, sundown towns when folks are being like, oh, I didn't know sundown towns existed or what was this green book thing? Like we actually had to have a travel guide. What the hell? And so it's a uh, man, you know, being used as a vessel to tell these stories. It's, it's a, uh, it's such a privilege. Uh, are you able to, because of, you know, using the live tweeting, are you able to kind of anticipate how people will react 
and 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 in other cases, have they surprised you by reacting to something that you didn't think they were going to react to? (laughs) (laughs) Misha and I were, uh, we were um, live tweeting the other night, and a bunch of folks again not giving spoilers away about episode nine, but they're like, you know, there's this moment like Letty has been running so much throughout the show physically running like she keeps my ass I noticed fucking running all the damn time man shit blood and running like that's the show <laughs> um and then there's this one moment where there wasn't running it was you know it's a walking involved and it never occurred to me <laughs> that in this moment maybe there should be some running <laughs> and that was so funny and surprising and I was like you know what Point well taken. She probably should have ran in this moment, but the bitch is walking. So uh, that's what we got. That's what we left with. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was actually, I'd earmarked that as one of my top questions to ask about Lovecraft was, is that, is that you really running? Like, are you really running that fast? <laughs> Hell yeah. Listen, I do my own stunts, okay? You know, I, I'm a stunt junkie. And so if you write something in the script, I'm too possessive over my character to, you know, let somebody um, else do it unless I am told by the director, you cannot do this. You know, I've always been fast. Look, I have five siblings, four brothers and one sister. We always used to race. But in the pilot, it says that Letty was a track star. So that's one of the things physically I had to go and train for with my trainer. Like, okay, she better be able to run fast. And then on the day when we were shooting it, um, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of dudes. And so my ego, I'm like, you know, I love when men underestimate, underestimate me. It's one of the things that just fucking turns me on, gets me going, man, gets my gasoline just revved up. And so like, you know, director, the camera crew, they're all like, we're going to go slow, you know, cause the camera's propped on like a, a, a golf cart so that they can lead me. We're gonna go slow, just so that we don't get too far distance from you. I'm thinking, mm-hmm, okay, I'm like, cool, 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 let's go slow. We gonna go slow, watch my slow. <laughs> and so the first take out, I was like, I bumped into the camera because they was going slow. <laughs> I mean, Letty is a track star and she's running from fucking monsters. So even if she wasn't a track star, like there's going to be some extra juice that's going to kick in for anyone, you know? So yes, that's absolutely me. I mean, it's funny. There were some people who, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw people be like, is that her? Was that a, and then even for like the nudity, they were like, is that a body double? I'm like, y'all don't know, y'all don't know me by now. That's funny. Um, Obviously there's been renewed interest. Uh, I, I definitely think, um, because of the success of Get Out and us and, you know, other other uh, movies and, and TV stuff that there has become now a vested interest in casting black people in horror movies. But um, horror, not just horror, but also sci-fi as well. Uh, it, what I found interesting about this kind of switch or this evolution is that we're being cast in a way that you can't ignore the racism, right? Like Get Out was about racism right and even in Watchmen where a lot of people did discover the Tulsa race riots as well because of of Watchmen and watching your show where people um where there's a there's a twin storyline yes there's there's horror and you got monsters and they crazy and y'all running for stuff and it's bloody and all this 
but there is I'm more scared of the white people in Lovecraft than I am of the monsters. And I don't know if that was by design or what, but I'm like, the white people terrify me. The monsters, yeah, I'm frightened, but it's more or less the white people because that really was, you know, a reflection of society. And so um, I'm wondering from from your perspective, do you see this being a permanent evolution that this is now something where you will maybe now going forward start to get scripts that reflect uh, uh, authentic black character in this movie and not just somebody who's an ornament or a caricature. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things Nisha said she and Jordan spoke about early on was this idea of black safety, you know, um, and and how, you know, terrifying black safety can be and how fragile black safety is. Um, so yeah, it's inherent that it, our safety and, and the danger that is inherent when you're pulled over for driving while black is going to be more scary than that monster because that monster, it is what it is. You know what it is. Like the danger of being black in America um, is oftentimes so terrifying because you don't know where the attack is coming from, right? So you can't always have your guard up. And I think what, what I'm encouraged by and where we are in this industry is there's more creatives behind the camera telling our stories, right? Um, there are more Jordan Peele's and Misha Green's and, you know, Ania DaCosta. Uh, there are more folks, an uh, Ava DuVernay, a Gina Prince-Bythewood, you know, uh, uh, Maggie Betts. These people are writing, directing, producing, creating stories, and they're censoring Black voices in these stories because you write what you know, you know? and 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 I think the more we have black filmmakers and storytellers behind the camera, <clears throat> the more we will get more authentic stories. You know, um, I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed Amisha, you know, have an argument with someone else in the creative process because they don't understand why this one thing is necessary to the story. This is not a part of their experience. This is foreign to them. And so when we are not present, when we are not in the room, when we are not a part of building the narrative, the narrative gets co-opted because, again, you write what you know. So if you don't know it, how are you going to write it? It seems so basic, but I don't even think with a lot of the horror movies that have been made, most of them, that when there were there was a the the a black person in it or if it was you know that that all that all familiar role of the black friend the awkward black friend with a bunch of white people in the horror movie that definitely going to die first which we all know i don't even think they understood that there is not just um different elements you need to put into it but in order for us to buy our role in this world it's just certain shit black people got to do. Yes, we have to run. Because why wouldn't we run? Like, right? Like, we're just not going to get ate up. Why she going down that alleyway, y'all? Like, come on, right? So there's got to be a sense of, like, realism where we're like, yep, I would probably do that. You right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is what I appreciate about Lovecraft is that it's naturally how I see black people responding. You know, even though it's a fictional, you know, it's built in a in this world that's been created. But I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I get that black people would do that. That makes sense. Yeah, it's so true. It's like, it's funny because I, again, it's something I didn't even think about when we were doing the running scene in the pilot. One of the things a bunch of people responded to on Twitter was the fact that Letty just ran. It was that simple. 
She ran and she didn't trip and she didn't stumble and she didn't fall and she didn't look back. Like she just ran. She had the target in mind and she ran towards that. And I didn't really realize how much that would impact people because I'm just responding in my body. I'm just thinking about my target, the intention, right? But that's true. It's something so small. But again, when you place us in these positions of power to tell our narrative, the narrative is going to essentially be told in a truthful way because we are living it. We know what we would do. I think that's just what's so important. That's why, you know, I feel encouraged right now. I feel that we will continue to get more of our stories told. We're hungry to see more authentic stories told. We're hungry to see this shift in balance of power. We're hungry to see the world reflected the way it actually looks. Okay, like when you live in New York and you got a bunch of friends, all of them ain't white. You just know that by now in 2020. That's something we are aware of. So when we see it in TV or in film, it feels off to us now. And we have people who can, more people who are trying to correct those narratives. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, it, you know, we need people to also understand that Friends was the spinoff of Living Single. But anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Living Single was first. Uh, <laughs> right? Then it was Friends, okay? Uh, but I, I, I will I will pick that battle another day. Um, all right, we're going to take a very quick break. And because uh, there's a lot more I want to get to with you, your relationship with, with, with Misha for sure. And how about your boy Jonathan Majors? Now a sex symbol, huh? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll talk about that and more with Journey Smollett in just a moment. So be right back with more of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's interesting to me that along with discovering you, people have also discovered Jonathan Majors as a result, your co-star in this and discovered him in such a way that now he has become a sex symbol. Is this uh, is this something <laughs> that you have made fun of him about? Because suddenly I am seeing photos of him everywhere and women talk about some, oh, Jonathan Majors, he is, he's so hot and all that. Tell me you are making fun of him about this in some capacity. I think I need to start making fun of him about this. I, I actually have not, but I absolutely have to now that you mentioned this. This is, uh, you know, for sure something that I will add to my list of things I make fun of him about. So let me do this. Let me get on this. <laughs> yes. I'll report back. Yes, get on that. Report back. But, uh, you know, with, with this uh, series, it, it's one of those, I tell people this, and I felt this way about Game of Thrones, is... This is not the multitask kind of series. Like you can't watch this and be doing anything else. Like it has to get your complete undivided attention. Otherwise you miss stuff. So not only am I, you know, watching it, but I'm also listening to some of the recap like podcasts so I can make sure I understand every single symbol. Cause I feel like everything means something like the, you know, I had to watch um, the first three multiple times because I was like, okay, 
okay, what does that mean? All right, what does that mean? Because that was, I found myself doing that because of the conversation has been built so much around symbolism. So for friends of yours that have watched it and, and people you know, are they constantly hitting you up like, so what does this mean or that? And how do you deal with it? It is so funny. I was literally, my sister, yes, my, my family does it a lot of like, wait, like they'll come up with strange theories. Like after they saw the first two, I thought, I think my brother, Jake, was like, I feel like you a ghost journey. You not real. Like, <laughs> they had all these theories. <laughs> so um, you came back to life, but did you really come back to life? Like, that's what I need to know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny. It is really funny to see, but also cool to see how people pick up on things that you like, ooh. I didn't think y'all would get that, but y'all got that. You know, I'm proud of y'all, you know, so. Yeah, you can't watch it and be distracted. Like, you really have to focus in on it, which is one of the things that, you know, I love because I feel like with a really great series, they're able to command your attention in that regard. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned a few times, like, your long and very illustrious acting career. And one genre I definitely love, uh, as I said, horror and sci-fi are not my necessarily go-to, but I, I do appreciate what, what I think to be really good work. But I do love comic book movies, for sure. And um, uh, Birds of Prey, was it, it was interesting because I remember, I didn't catch it in theater I, theaters, I actually watched it on a plane. That was the first time I saw it. But I remember the narrative that was around the movie and people made it seem like it was some kind of disappointment and I didn't get it at all because you guys were spectacular it did really well I mean was was this a narrative that you noticed as well and, and where do you think this narrative or why do you think it even existed around this film which I thought was was pretty well done I don't have an answer for that I I I don't know <clears throat> I don't know you know I think there's power in narrative you know people say it and it is believed you know um uh and and I think though the fans, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a widely accepted narrative. You know, I, I see the, the response from folks who have seen it and the fans. I mean, it blows my mind the response that we've gotten. You know, just from what I, you know, feel or hear. Um, you know, they are so passionate about birds of prey, about the characters. You know. For me, I was I was blown away by the response to Black Canary because I didn't know what they were going to think about it. You know, um, they were either going to love it or they were not going to love it. You know, um, and just to see how enthusiastic they have been and passionate about the Black Canary that we, you know, created, it warms my heart every single time. I mean, just last week they had like the whole hashtag going, and I, I was like, y'all, like you know, it's just. I feel the love so much. And that's what I, one of the things I love about the comic book world is how passionate the the comic book fans are about these characters, you know, um, and it made me go into it with such like reverence and humility and respect because you got to respect the source material because that is what made them fall in love with the character to begin with. Right. Um, and just to see, you know, how passionate, like you said, you know, people love the film as like a black actress, black female. Okay, let me say, you do not get to do this that often. It's very, you know, few and far between. And now I'm addicted. 
Now I'm like, where's the next action movie that I can do? Because uh, your girl is an action junkie. I mean, it's it was so liberating and empowering. And I just felt so strong, you know, in, in ways that I didn't think I could, you know, to, to, to train your body to become a weapon, right? It's such an art. And I have so much respect for folks who who have mastered that, you know? Um, and I've always loved those, those films, you know? I grew up watching them and, and honestly, like Bruce Lee was a hero to me growing up. You know, my younger brother, Jockey, there's not one Bruce Lee movie that he hasn't seen more than 10 times. <laughs> um, and just never really thought that I would be able to step into that world, right? Step into the world, into the action world. Um, and 8711, the stunt team who trained us up, you know, I'm still close to them today, you know, to this day, just had, you know, Anisha, who was my stunt double for Black Canary and Maddie, who was one of the um, stunt coordinators, but also trained me up and pushed me so hard. They were just at my house, you know, last night, like, I love them because we bonded, you know, they pushed me so hard. And that's what makes 8711 so great is you know, they do all like the John Wick movies and, you know, some of the best action teams in the business because they push the actors to do everything. They want you to learn it all so that they can shoot you. I love that kind of stuff. So yeah, I had, I had a blast doing it. I had a blast. Okay. So if they do John Wick, then I wonder if they were behind uh, Halle Berry when she was in the the last John Wick. Cause they were, I saw the, I saw really, cause I saw the, the raw footage of her when they had that scene where they shooting everybody and they're together. And I'm like, okay, so if it goes down, I'm calling you and Halle and y'all got to lead us to the revolution. It's just that simple. We got it. We, we got you. We going, we, we got you. Cause Halle looked like she is surgical. With the Glock. I'm like, I know it's the same team. It was the same team that did Birds of Prey. They did the John Wick. Um, and my Anisha, who was my stunt double on Birds of Prey, was Hallie's stunt double on John Wick 4. Well, uh, one of the other firsts that you experienced in Birds of Prey was that was the first time on screen that you sang, correct? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Going through that in, in Birds of Prey, did that help you? Because I know you have a little bit of anxiety about doing this, but did it help you for Lovecraft? Okay, so I actually had to shoot the pilot of Lovecraft before Birds of Prey. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, arguably Lovecraft helped me with Birds of Prey. Um, But it was different with Birds of Prey. It was more demanding. The actual song was more demanding than um, the Lovecraft country one. Um, But yes, it was the first time I had done it on that scale, you know? And yes, the first time in a film, because Lovecraft is a TV show. Terrified of it, you know? But I also love doing things that I'm terrified of, because it, it forces me to grow. It forces me to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, but it just, yeah, the stakes, the stakes were high, because Canary, it's one of the things she's known for, is, you know, um, her, her voice being an instrument but also being a weapon so it was so integral into her story the storyline that we were creating for her i had to do it right man it was <laughs> but um nonetheless a lot of fun once i like got out of my own way well um you know i i think a lot of people will be surprised to to know that you 
kind of had a, a lot of fear heading into that moment. I mean, you're you're from a, a musical family and uh, uh, artistry and creativity seem to come natural to you. So what what is it about singing that leaves you with this kind of fear? Or why do you have it, I guess? Okay, so the funny thing is, is uh, this is the long answer. Um, when I was younger, I had a record deal uh, when I was 13. And, you know, it didn't go well and stuff like that. And I think throughout my life, I've had such a, a reverence for music. It's healed me. I use it in so many ways throughout my life. Um, and singing and singers, I have such respect for them, you know. Um, and so I oftentimes found myself from the time I was a kid up until now, loving to sing, but not loving to sing for people. Um, because I, I think because I faced a lot of uh, uh, criticism when I was young about it. And so it just made me retreat. But I would sing, just not in front of anyone, like no one. And so it's interesting how the world works and where it forces you to confront all your shit. You know, um, that's the thing about these, these projects that come to me. Oftentimes they come and I realize that, oh, this is coming to me because Letty is forcing me to work through my own shit. You know, not just with my voice. There's so, I mean, Lovecraft Country cost me so much when I tell you. There was so much I had to bring to the off, uh, altar you know, the offering, the sacrifice, um, what it demanded of me, but it forces you to grow. Um, but it is interesting. I can, I can point to so many different roles and, and there was things in my life I had to work through that the character demanded I work through it. Now, um, because of, I imagine underground was also probably somewhat of an emotional experience as well. Did, did doing underground, did that help you with Lovecraft Country, or I me, mean, what did Lovecraft Country dredge? Like, did that dredge up some of the, some of the same things from that you experienced, maybe in Underground, or, or were they different because you'd already been through it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. It's interesting. I feel that the thing about the stories of Underground and Lovecraft is they're both very ancient, they're very ancestral, and so it forces you as an artist to go back into your history. It forces you to activate that blood memory. And so without a Rosalie existing, you cannot have a Letty, literally. Without the Rosalies of the world, you know, we come from that level of resilience. The fact that our folks, our kinfolk survived and whether they were able to escape slavery or not, they still fucking survived. We know this, you and I are proof of it because we hear, right? Um, Without that spirit, that rebellion of, of I am going, you, you shall not dominate me. Even if you dominate me, you shall not dominate me. My very existence is a radical act. You arguably couldn't have had a Letty, right? Um, and so I think the process of me experiencing that and living that for two seasons absolutely informed my approach with Letty, without a doubt. You know, I had already done the history, the work in myself of going back and reading the bullwhip days and like really diving into, you know, the slave narratives and hearing firsthand accounts of what it was like to be an enslaved woman. You can't, once you know it, once you see it, once you experience it, you can't unlearn it. That's in our DNA, it's in our blood. 
we know it, it's familiar. So when you, would, when you approach a Letty, I go back to that stuff. I go back to Ida B. Wells. I go back. But then you build on that and you've got, oh, a Gwendolyn Brooks. You've got, you know, a Lorraine Hansberry. You know, you've got a James Baldwin. You've got these folks who are not so removed from that, right? It was essential to understand where we were coming from, to understand why our dignity was so important to us in the 1950s to understand why dressing a certain way and walking around the world and, and carrying yourself with a level of pride and dignity was so important to our folks. Why speaking well and, and seeking to read books and that rush, that desire to vote, that desire to educate ourselves, that desire to push our race forward. That was a saying, like they would say all the time, we gotta push our race forward. You know, that was driven so much by the Rosalies of the world, you know? And then on top of the fact, like working with Nisha, Lovecraft Country was our technically third season of TV together. And so we, kind of worked through all of our shit <laughs> in the first two seasons of Underground. So by the time we got to Lovecraft, oh, we, it was on. You know, we were off to the races. Our our approach with each other, we had the second hand going. You know, it, it was so fluid and natural. I understood her writing and she understood my process. Now, given where the response has been and um, again, both critical and just word of mouth in these streets. Uh, what do you know about uh, the prospects of another season of Lovecraft Country? You gotta ask the suits. Because, I mean, literally, you you know as much as I know. I don't know nothing. You know, I know nothing. Y'all can't get our appetite all wetted up. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, not come back. Like, rude. Right? That, that would be super rude. Right? I, I mean, I don't know. I would love it. Of course, the whole cast, like all of us, we love our characters. We all became a family. Let's, you know, let me say that. Like, we became a family because this project demanded so much of us. You know, we had rituals. Um, I mean, there were moments Jonathan and I was praying together before the day was about to begin or me, Michael and Jonathan. You know, we had this fist bump going before each take. No matter where we were, we had to do the fist bump before each take because we had to ground each other and be like, I got you, you know. We would love a season two. I don't know. Call HBO. Ask them. Everybody out there, y'all tweeting, email HBO. Make sure that Lovecraft Country comes back. Yeah. It, it needs to keep going. Um, for our own mental sanity, we need it. They got to decide it, you know. Um, all right, Journey, before I get you out of here, it's a game I like to play with my guest. It is called This or That. I'm going to give you two choices. You got to pick one. Oh, shit. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, shit. Uh, meditating or journaling? Journaling. But both. But uh, Yeah, I know you do both, but you prefer journaling uh, to meditating? I, yeah, it's it's uh, a part of my survival. Mm, I heard that. Um, tequila or vodka? Tequila! <laughs> now, are you a Blanco? You a Reposado? What are you? Anejo? I don't know any of those. So I don't know. You're I'm like just, just whatever tequila. You give me. I mean, I'm not an aficionado. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't really drink a lot. When I drink, it is tequila. 
it's like all or nothing. <laughs> I heard it's very, it, it is definitely very calorie friendly as a unofficial expert. I can tell you that. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> it is. It is calorie friendly. Uh, Martin or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? <gasps> Don't make me choose. You choosing. And you were on an episode of Martin. So what's it going to be? <laughs> I got to go with Martin. I got to go with Martin. Yep. Uh, this is a Whitney Houston question. Where you are or Miracle? Miracle. <laughs> I love you for knowing Miracle. Come on now. <laughs> I also know more importantly, not only do I know Miracle, more importantly, I know you love Miracle, right? <laughs> I do love Miracle. I when I'm when I'm on tequila, I'll be singing Miracle. That's it. <laughs> you know, and here I would have thought that you might have been a saving all my love on tequila. <laughs> I mean, it all comes out. She'd be singing the whole discography of Whitney. So uh, you have a son, correct? Yes, Hunter. Yes. Okay. So this is a mom's question. Uh, Peppa Pig or Paw Patrol? <gasps> Paw Patrol. For him, at least. You know, Paw Patrol, he, he is Marshall. He, he literally went a whole year where we had to call him Marshall. A whole year. This job would stay in character so severely. Stay in character. <laughs> if I, I mean, if I would call him baby, hey baby, I'm not baby. I'm Marshall. Me, Gretel. If you don't let me, as your mother, call you baby, thank God he's out of that phase. But the whole time of Lovecraft Country that we were shooting, everyone on set, Michael, hey Marshall, <laughs> like everyone knew you had to call him Marshall. Now you know that's how it starts. Like next thing you know. Maybe he wants to do some acting because if he could play a character for a whole year, I'm just saying. This this he this job can for sure he will stay in character. I mean, he lives it, eats and breathes it. Forget you, Daniel Day Lewis. Hunter. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't we couldn't call his hands hands. They were paws. I mean, it was like it was so specific. He was committed. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you, Stanislav P would have been proud. Okay. <laughs> that is adorable. He was so specific about his character work. All right. And finally, I feel like I saved the most difficult for last. Prince or Stevie Wonder? <gasps> That's blasphemous. It kind of is. But. <laughs> I mean, we usually do Prince or Michael Jackson, but Prince or Stevie Wonder? I decided that's too easy. Prince or Stevie. <laughs> I'm such a Prince fan. Let me just say this. But Stevie is like soul healing music. Like when I need my soul healed, I go to Stevie more than I go to Prince. Like Prince is like, yes, Prince is a vibe for sure. But Stevie Wonder has gotten me through moments in life. So I got to go to Stevie. I contend that the most perfect album ever made was Songs in the Key of Life. I contend that that is the case, right? Which is feels weird to say because Stevie had like three other albums that could also fit into that. Into that. But I'm just going to say songs of the key of life. And like, yeah. there's so many other. Fulfilling this is first finale. That's the name of it. Secret Life of Plants. I mean. Secret Life of Plants, yeah. I feel, I feel very... Um, lucky and honored to have seen him in concert you know i made that mistake with whitney houston i never got to see her in concert but stevie i made sure to see i've seen i saw prince three times so and every time it was an experience every single time yeah i saw prince like four or five times and stevie actually amir took me to my first stevie wonder concert and i was crying wow did you get a chance to meet him i did i did wow we went backstage and there was like 
a jam session that happened with Amir and James Poyser and Stevie Wonder. And I was thinking to myself, how the hell did I end up here? This is a God moment. <laughs> that definitely sounds incredible. Um, well, you're incredible. And thank you for spending this time with me. I appreciate you being a guest here. And I'm looking forward to season two. We're going to put it in existence. It's happening. We're going to speak it. We're going to speak it. Um, and hopefully, I'd love to see you play more movies where you beat people's asses because I think you have a special talent for it. <laughs> I got a lot of rage in me. That's the thing. <laughs> so much fucking rage. So it comes natural. Right? I was like, I feel like ass whooping on screen is your calling. So we, we, we going to put that out there. Too. We don't go with that. <laughs> ass whooping on screen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Journey is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. So my favorite kind of people are those who are self-aware, even if it means we're going to laugh at their own expense. So shout out to Alexis Ohanian Sr., who some of you might know as Serena Williams's husband, because he exposed a detail about himself on Twitter that has left me shaken to the core and also shaking with laughter. And dare I say, also bothered. Alexis disclosed to his nearly 400,000 Twitter followers that his wife, Serena, taught him what a washcloth was. Yes, you heard that correctly. Alexis revealed this in a response to another tweet, which was also written by a white gentleman. That tweet, uh, which was by someone named Joel Saxon, was actually a poll. And this is how the tweet read. When showering, are you full body washer or an armpits and genitals only person? Um, I'm vexed, people. Terribly vexed. I didn't realize those were the choices. I thought the only acceptable answer was washing your whole damn body. Now, Alexis further explained in the comments under his tweet why he never knew what a washcloth was. He said he thought washcloths were just for decoration. He also said, and I quote, I just thought the bar of soap was an overachiever. Woo, child, la ghetto. Now, I'm going to just go ahead and say it because I know a lot of black people who are listening right now are probably thinking the same thing. Damn, that's some white shit. Because, and this is through unscientific polling because I feel like it is definitely accurate. My guess is that 100% of black people use washcloths. 100% of us knew what it was from the beginning. We're undefeated when it comes to using washcloths, in fact. And undefeated when it comes to washing our entire bodies. But kudos to Alexis. He tweeted he thought it was worth being laughed at so that some stigmas and stereotypes could be erased. Namely, he says, the narrative that people believe white people epitomize cleanliness. But most importantly, shout out to Serena Williams. I mean, damn, black women save Wakanda, the democracy, and apparently we got to save white men from not being able to properly wash their asses. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 
please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. 